those moments. I think what I learned is don't mess with nature. You'd, <laughs> you'd rather, it's stronger than you and you should learn to contribute with it instead of fighting it. And that's what I promised to myself before, before this trip that respect the mountains because you don't know mm. what difficulties you can get during your trip. Yeah. What did your guide say to you when you returned? <laughs> he, was, he was very angry. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Alan Hill. In this podcast series of The Nostalgic Vagabond, we're talking travel, all kinds of travel, with all kinds of interesting people from all around the world. In conversation, we'll share personal anecdotes, tales of adventure, and maybe misadventure too. Listen in for some unique cultural perspectives, tips from seasoned veterans, and an array of diverse experiences that have contributed to many life-changing journeys. Travel really is a privilege. We know that now. And if we can't do it right this very moment, let's talk about it then. Hey, where are you right now? On this episode of the Nostalgic Vagabond podcast, I talk with Jofia Shafar, She's from Hungary and currently bases herself in Budapest and sometimes in Italy. Sophia is a journalist and has written for multiple print and web publications. She describes herself as a beginning traveller, but from that beginning, she has thrown herself in the deepest of deep ends. Like cruising with strangers on a digital nomad's cruise ship and then backpacking around South America as her first solo trip. And from there, things continued to go up, literally. In conversation... Jofia shares her motivations for trekking to Everest Base Camp at the start of 2020. This kind of trip is all about pushing the limits of your fears, physical abilities, and inner stamina. Being organised is important too, but sometimes things don't go according to plan, and 2020 was definitely the year for that. From experiencing altitude sickness on the mountain passes, to not having the best equipment, to getting lost on the biggest mountain in the world, this trip was certainly a grand adventure as Jofia explains. And because Jofia is used to being the interviewer and not the interviewee, I figured, why not let her ask me a few questions too? Anyways, let's get to the conversation. Jofia Shafa, thanks for coming on the Nostalgic Vagabond podcast. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Where are you right now? Currently, I'm in uh, Italy with my partner who moved back home from the UK after the pandemic or the coronavirus outbreak. Originally, my plan for the second half of 2020 was to explore Europe. Well, instead of that, now I am happy to be able to travel back and forth between Hungary and Italy. Mm. I am lucky to have a location-independent job and that I can bring work everywhere with me. So since... Last spring, I spent my time either with my family back home or here in northwest Italy. We actually met in a nice cafe in Budapest. Yes. About a year and a half ago, nearly. And we bonded over traveling and writing and being creative. Can you just tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why you love travel? Hey, well, I'm a journalist. I uh, have been working for a Hungarian online uh, lifestyle magazine for almost seven years. Uh, occasionally, I write articles for other mediums too, for example, National Geographic Hungary or a print magazine that focuses on uh, psychology and well-being. 
topics I write about are mostly whatever interests interests me, let it be mental and physical health, the importance of philosophy, social and global issues, moral dilemmas, and travel. Yes, traveling, I consider myself as a beginner traveler (laughs) (laughs) since my first big trip happened uh, two years ago when I went to South America and spent four months there uh, backpacking. The answer to the question why uh, do I travel? Well, that uh, adventure to Latin America was the, was triggered by a personal life crisis. Mm. And I felt like I really need uh, to change the environment. I, I needed to take a big step in a different uh, direction to get out of uh, my comfortable uh, everyday life. Mm-hmm. So I literally made a big step when I decided, okay, I go to South America. And uh, now I'm glad to say that it was one of the best decisions in my life I took. It's quite an extreme take, I would say, for most people for their first real big adventure to go from Europe to South America. I'm curious, did you go solo? Did you go by yourself? Uh, Most of the time, yeah, I traveled solo, but Leaving from Europe, uh, I wasn't alone. Basically, I joined to 500 people traveling on a cruise ship from Barcelona to Brazil. Mm. This is a specific, it's called Nomad Cruise. Nomad Cruise. Yes. It's a conference cruise ship where many people from different fields, I mean, entrepreneurs, writers, photographers, so people, digital, the so-called digital nomads who, mm-hmm. can, who can travel and work at the same time. This is their, I think it was, yeah, 13 days long cruise ship on the Atlantic Ocean, which was a great adventure just itself, the whole conference, as I love my me times. I, uh, socializing can warm me out a lot. Wow, okay. So traveling with these many people and taking part in these different programs, nothing was compulsory, acro yoga, music jamming, workshops and keynotes and many kind of programs you could take part in. And the fear of missing out, that so-called <laughs> FOMO, yeah. that, that was always around in the air because I realized that I have to let my fears go when you have that inferiority complex that mm-hmm. you're surrounded by all these successful people, you know, businessmen and who are you, what, what, are, what, what are you doing here amongst mm. these People that after a few days I could let it all go and I just enjoyed the moment. I got really inspired by this community. Right. It was a great adventure. So it took you a, a few days to get into the rhythm of being away from home and being outside your comfort zone and pushing yourself to realize the new you. Once you arrived in Brazil, you said you were in South America for four months. Can you just say a little bit about the kinds of places you visited and what were those experiences like for you? So, first of all, I did not plan Mm -hmm. 
while I had this trip, I knew which countries I would want to visit. And most of them I managed to visit at the end. So Brazil, Chile, uh, Bolivia and Peru. And the first week when we arrived to Brazil, we spent the first week together with some of the nomads I met uh, on this cruise ship. Mm -hmm. And after that, everyone could decide where the, some people traveled back to Europe, some stayed in South America. I made friends whom I visited later in, Chile, in another country. So mm. the first few weeks I spent in Brazil, I started looking uh, options for, you know, work away. I, I travel a low budget of course. and, and I all uh, <laughs> like uh, getting ideas or, or uh, when I kind of organize uh, my travels, what options I have. So I looked for workaway, couch surfing, uh, Airbnb, but it's not about the, because I could afford, uh, I mean, staying in a, not a hotel because I don't like the vibe of the hotel. I like uh, meeting up with locals mm. and spending time with people to see how they live their lives. Uh, so that's why I choose these options for the authenticity. So yes, first week with all these nomads, then I spent a week, a thousand kilometers away from this paradise, like beach paradise, I traveled to a hidden village somewhere uh, south, uh, the southern part of Brazil. It was a camp in a fishing village, which I uh, looked after and helped the hosts. However, it wasn't my idea to spend Christmas and New Year's Eve in Rio de Janeiro because I had this preconception that me and the city like Rio, it's too... Totally. <laughs> it's different. Yeah, it was the idea was too much. But when I had the news that 50 people from this cruise ship are spending the Christmas and the New Year's Eve in Rio de Janeiro, then I, I thought it over and I I went there and two weeks in Rio. It was amazing. At the same time, I was homesick. I really missed my family because it was my first first Christmas far, far away from mm. my home, from family and friends. And when I was Skyping uh, with people at home, why are you moaning and crying? You are at Copacabana Beach, 30 degrees. <laughs> we are here in the freezing winter. We are all jealous to so stop this. It was hard at first, uh, emotionally and mentally, to get used to this lifestyle of you don't know what happens next day you you constantly have to be alert sure so yes um places i would say that i tried in different as like staying in a village staying at the beach and in rio de janeiro in the uh, in the center in the party area mm -hmm. so that was the first month in south america so when I met you, this was after you'd had your experiences in South America, wasn't it? Yes. And it wasn't long after we had that cup of tea, coffee in Budapest. By the way, I still owe you a cup of tea. So next time I see you, <laughs> it's my turn to buy the drinks, okay? Okay, I can't wait. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> 
a, f- a few months later, after we met in Budapest, you went away again. You went trekking in the Himalaya, which I've never done before. I'm very intrigued about this idea. I'm curious to your motivation as to why you went there. You said the first time you went traveling in South America was because there was a big turning point in your life. Yeah. And so you went to, in a way, a kind of extreme first experience going that far away from home to a completely new culture on your own, but discovering a network of people at the same time. Why did you go trekking in in Nepal? (laughs) So after my first big trip, even when I was in the middle of traveling in South America, I knew that my next destination will be somewhere far east. And, but that was only a vague idea yet. However, at the same time, I was dreaming about this next trip. I, I knew that it must include Nepal because of the culture I'm, I'm very interested in. Mostly when I travel, it's, uh, it's uh, the traditions, the habits, and the lifestyle I want to get, get dwelled in. Mm-hmm. And also, I love, I realized that reading books and watching documentaries is not enough to be, mm. to get wiser and wiser. You have to put yourself in certain situations to, to, uh, push the boundaries, the limits of your physical and mental and uh, emotional state of mind. So I thought, why not? Once I'm once I'm in Nepal, why not trying to do something extreme, which I have never done. So and not long before I left, I I was listening to to a summit climbers um, speech in Budapest, and that was the last kick in the butt (laughs) to say so yes i I have to do it i assumed that you had all this hiking experience perhaps because in europe especially in certain parts in europe there is a real hiking culture and a lot of people hike all the time and i just assumed that Sophia, you you were a, a hiker but are you saying you went to nepal and hiked for the first time in that kind of terrain that was, yeah, really a big step from, well, if you think in my country, the highest mountain is 1,014 meters <laughs> high. <laughs> so that is not a big challenge to take. And second, well, it was a warming up experience in Italy, northern Italy, when I first came uh-huh. here solo traveling just for a big backpacking. And then I... I was hiking on Monte Baldo, which is over, I reached 2,200 meters. So that was mm-hmm. the next next grade. And then the third grade was in Peru when I, I took the four-day-long Inca Trail, the classic Inca Trail, which included visiting Machu Picchu. And the highest peak was 4,200 meters there. Mm-hmm. So that was my record until this uh, right. next step in Nepal. Okay, so you weren't raw at all. You had done levels of mountain climbing and starting from 1,000 meters in basically flat Hungary, going up towards yeah. the Andes. I mean, the Andes is a decent mountain range. So 
in a way, you had kind of prepared yourself for walking in the Himalaya. I feel more sure that you're not as crazy as I might have thought for a second there. <laughs> but it wasn't the consequent, uh, uh, I mean, consequently organized travel. It just happened. And I still fear because I'm my fitness, I mean, I have an average fitness condition. Mm. And I thought I would uh, have uh, some struggles, but I was doing okay. <laughs> Especially with long distance endurance activities, because mm-hmm. I've done a marathon before and I've done some shorter distance half marathons and just long distance runs in general. And there's a lot to be said about your mental stamina as well as your physical stamina, because I think personally, when it comes to endurance, it's all about what's in your head. It's all mental. Yeah. If it's painful, if it hurts, if it aches, that's okay. You can get past that. And so that's why you need to have that strong mental strength, which in your case, it seems you possess a lot of that. You say you're an average hiker per se, but maybe you're well above average in your mental stamina and your mental endurance, and you can push yourself beyond your limits, whereas other people are too scared to do that what do you think yeah i totally agree you need to be mentally uh, strong as well some people would just say you're crazy you're irresponsible (laughs) you're you're very brave i would just call myself curious and the next step is not enough when it's done you want Mm. another one so as as far as i can judge my capacities and I feel okay I just go forward and nothing can stop me (laughs) yeah (laughs) Nepal and trekking through that area was that something you've always wanted to do in the sense that is that a bucket list thing or was that something that kind of just inspired you after your trips in South America I don't have a bucket list Uh, I kind of go with the flow Mm. but I do need sometimes a big amount of adrenaline and this <laughs> this was something that uh, kind of made me it was a rebirth or mm. something that added uh, so much to my perspective or the way I look at myself or life itself how did you go about organizing this trip is it something you did solo or did you go with an agent within a group or did somebody take care of all of the logistics for you how how did you manage the practical things at first i thought about uh, teaming up with a group mm-hmm. of people like-minded backpackers so when i arrived to asia it was the end of january last year so, and that was the day when I arrived to Thailand first, and then I went through Malaysia to Nepal. Mm-hmm. The day I arrived, uh, got the first news about a virus killing people. Mm. And that, I didn't have a clue uh, what was going on in the world. And I was uh, in a dilemma to stay and do these two months long travel or go back home but I stayed Mm. and during uh, so when I arrived to Thailand and then went to Malaysia that's when I started to organize my next country 
programs and adventures. So I started looking for uh, local agents, uh, tour and trekking operators to see, and there are plenty in Kathmandu, in Nepal. Right. After my experience, I would say that you can do it without a tour guide, but not on your own. There were people on their own trekking on the Himalayas. I wouldn't do that, but with friends or with someone else, it's kind of safe and doable. So I found Magical Nepal, a tour operator, Mm -hmm. and due to the coronavirus, there were no other tourists. All the tourists, they cancelled their uh, previously booked trackings because everyone was scared of this virus. It was the the date when I started trekking was 1st of March, so... Nepal, Nepal was still safe, no cases were, as far as I remember, but that was during my trekking when they start, started shutting down things. Yeah, yeah. So uh, all the, it was only me who, <laughs> who actually booked, only me, I, I wanted to book a group, uh, yeah. a group trekking, but then they warned me. It might be only you and the, your tracking guide uh, on the trip. And that's what happened, basically. So it was like a private uh, uh, track. Mm. And I'm kind of lucky because it wasn't overwhelmed, tra- the same trails which, where there are thousands of people every day when, when the hiking season starts. Yeah. It was very so-called comfortable and even in their accommodations, in the tea houses where we stayed, not many people. <laughs> you basically got a private tour, but not for the cost of a private tour. Exactly. <laughs> because you were the only one, well, you could say brave enough or silly enough or crazy enough yeah. to not go back home during the pandemic, but to continue with your plans. And everybody else had decided to go home and cancel their plans. Yeah. It must have been surreal being on these trails and I suppose with far fewer people than there normally would be. Yeah, it was bizarre. And at the same time, you did not have Wi-Fi access. You didn't know what's going on in the world. You couldn't check uh, news relating to this issue. Uh, Our tour guides, they had access uh, at some points to Wi-Fi. So... Whatever I knew during my 12, no, it was at the end, it was only 10 days long, the tracking. Uh, I knew it from some words of my uh, guide. It was weird. And after I got, <laughs> after I got back to Kathmandu from the tracking, a few days after they started canceling flights back to Europe, and my flights were canceled and they started mm-hmm. shutting down everything. So I could manage to do this tracking, but was very lucky. You almost got stuck at the yeah. end. <laughs> Did you say the tour company was called Magical Nepal Tours? Magical Nepal, that's that's the Magical re- Nepal. Yes. Okay. I'll have to look them up. Something that I always I'm curious about in my own biology uh, in terms of mountain climbing is this idea of altitude sickness. Mm-hmm. The highest I've ever been climbing is is not actually that high because I'm from Australia yeah. and we have a high mountain. Well, it's higher than the highest mountain in Hungary, but it's still a small hill in comparison to 
many other mountain ranges in the world. I think it's a little bit more than two kilometers high, which isn't that much. So I am curious about this idea of altitude sickness. Now, do you recall the highest point you reached when you were trekking in the Himalaya? And did you experience this altitude sickness at any time? Yes, I did have uh, some sickness, which was the symptoms were short of breath and uh, splitting headache here at the in the back of your head. Back. Yes, that's what they say. That is the sign of when you have to stop and either turn back and go lower mm. or just stop and wait for your body to acclimatize. How Acclimat- to say? Acclimatize. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Exactly. And it was when we reached 4,200 mm-hmm. and over that. Before that, we had some stopover in the same altitude. So we let our body get used to the. But at one point, Exactly on the same day when we decided, okay, instead of 12 days, let's do it in 10 days, the whole track. So I wanted to accelerate. And at that exact day when we arrived in uh, in the afternoon to our next uh, accommodation, that's when I started to have these uh, symptoms. And when my guide told me, maybe we should stay longer here. And then the following day, no. So, <laughs> you're stubborn <laughs> yeah Let, let's sleep over it and basically that's what all i needed a good sleep because the nights before like two after two three hours of sleep maybe it's the fresh air in the mountains that i was super energized i didn't feel like physically i'm worn out because of the lack of sleep but that's exactly what I needed. And the next morning, I was I was feeling much better. So we carried on mm. due to the or, uh, or the second original plans. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the highest altitude that you reached? Do you recall the number? Yeah, that was the base camp or the mm. final destination. Five thousand three hundred forty meters, which is Everest yes. base camp. Yes. Ah. So did you say that it took you more or less just sleeping during the night for your headache to go away and your shortness of breath to go away? So you were acclimatized literally in a day to that level of, of altitude? Yeah. Hmm. If I compare it to my experiences in South America, when I, from Northern Chile, I took a flight to Bolivia, there, the difference was 1,000 meters, but it was a sudden movement, so like a one-hour-long flight. And that was worse than in the Himalayas when it was, gradu- it was a gradual, not a sudden. Yeah, because your body is adjusting every minute rather than being thrown into a new climate in an instant. Huh, very interesting. I'm curious... When you go on a a hike like this, what kind of equipment or clothing is completely necessary? Again, being from Australia, before I moved to the Northern Hemisphere, I didn't even really own a winter jacket because that's not necessary in Australia. When you go to mountainous areas, a winter jacket is maybe not even enough. So what kind of equipment um, and clothing did you bring with you to walk in the Himalaya? 
Okay, so before I left uh, from Hungary and I had it in my head that I, I would go uh, climbing, I bought this water filtering bottle just in case for any uh, scenarios or emergency cases. But due to clothing, so because I, I started my trip in Thailand and in Malaysia where <laughs> hot <laughs> 30 degrees, uh, I didn't want to bring uh, winter stuff with me, but I knew that once I get to Nepal and I want to go in the mountains, I will need to hire uh, some stuff. At least I thought I could hire because in Peru it wasn't a problem before my uh, trekking. Uh, you could hire boots, uh, mm. layers or uh, ponchos, raincoats, anything. And that was my expectation in a country which is based on tourism and hiking. And no, All right. <laughs> basically you, you, most of the stuff you you are supposed to buy, but I was lucky enough, my guide, my tour guide, he borrowed me a pair of these Gore-Tex uh, mm. uh, trousers. Then I bought a winter jacket, but I had a nice hiking boots with me. However, they weren't waterproof. They weren't super good quality ones, but I I thought they would, they would be fine. So due to my minimalism because i don't like buying and accumulating stuff that i had this idea just to borrow things or maybe leave things behind once sure. i once i use them so at the end i managed to get all the necessary layers like you need several layers and it was interesting six degrees but after a few uh, hundred meters of climbing with your it was maximum 10 kilograms, my backpack. I guess you're in t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, because, because, Yeah, mm. but then weather changes. So like suddenly one, one minute it's sunny and warm and then there are clouds and snow coming behind yeah. you. So you have to be well equipped uh, in this sense. So you'd recommend a decent quality of boots, hopefully waterproof. Yes maybe Gore-Tex trousers, which are waterproof as well, and then layers are important yes. in the mountains. Yes, everything should be waterproof, gloves, uh, <laughs> everything. Uh, luckily, it was mostly the nights when it was raining, mm. and uh, that's why it's recommended starting to start your tracks uh, early morning and by the time you get to your next spot then it either starts snowing or raining but it's always unpredictable the weather so sure. you have to be well prepared and yes the the places the tea houses uh, where we stayed for the night they provided because they weren't rammed mm. I, I could have two blankets instead of one. I had I was carrying my sleeping bag, which I didn't really need until a certain height and uh, degree, like minus 15 was the lowest temperature hmm. as far as I remember. Yeah, yeah, they were cold nights. They didn't really heat up uh, the places where we stayed, only from the morning. So you had to be... Very well wrapped for the night. Of course. <laughs> Did you say minus 15, one five? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you've lived through many colder days than that growing up in Hungary. 
Yes, when I was a child, we had really cold winters. Not anymore. They are too too mild and it's <laughs> scary. Yeah. But I loved when we had lots of snow and uh, it was fun. <laughs> After you came back from this trip in the Himalaya, you sent me a link to one of your videos that you created from all the different photographs you took and the the video that you took. Yeah. It was beautiful. I, I, you put a nice soundtrack to it, and uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes of the podcast for that video as well, if you, if you want me to. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> sure, thanks. I, I was wondering, was there a particular moment or a particular place on your journey that stands out in your memory as, as a moment of epiphany or a moment of uh, and a, a eureka moment where you had a new thought or you, you felt an inspiration or you just were overcome by the beauty of the area you were in? Well, the whole experience was like incredible being surrounded by all these giant things called mountains and the highest things mm. on planet Earth. That was marvelous itself. Also the vibe of the Buddhist monasteries, when we, after one day after a lunch, we could uh, pop in to see what happens and watching those monks pray, meditating, drinking their yak tree, uh, yak butter teas. And it, spiritually, it was very, very an, an uplifting moment. Mm. But I had a very hard tough uh, few hours after reaching the base camp uh, because I was stubborn enough again to go there on my own by myself without my guide uh, from the tea house mm -hmm. where we stayed that day it was about an hour and a half away but it was too late when I set off to to walk to track on this uh, rocky, not very safe uh, terrain mm -hmm. because you, you sleep at one point and then you can stay there. And if no one is around, my tool, because I knew he didn't really like the Everest base camp. It was kind of, after 20 years, it was kind of boring for him sure. to do the same track. <laughs> so I told him, I told him, don't worry, stay here, you rest, and I go myself. So that's what happened. He showed me basically uh, which path to take in the morenas next, next to these glaciers. You, you will recognize this shape of rocks, so you will be fine. And I believed I would be fine. I was too self-confident. <laughs> I'm usually not, but when I face these kinds of challenges, I, I'm too brave and yes, maybe crazy. And uh, I learned my lesson because I, re I reached the base camp, took the necessary selfies to prove, <laughs> to, to prove that yes, I did it. Mm -hmm. And on the way back, I lost the pass and then it got dark. So basically what happened is I got lost in the dark in, uh, uh, over 5,000 meters. It, it uh, was the scariest experience in my life. I was thinking for a few minutes, however, the survival instinct switched on, but I thought, okay, 
I might stay here and tomorrow someone will find me being frozen on this yeah on these rocks because yeah I don't know how I lost the track because it's not a hard thing to remember the same mm. uh, route but somehow maybe do you think of the altitude sickness your brain wasn't thinking can be properly. That, yes it messes with your brain uh, now that I think back it's very easy to to lose even when you're in a state of mind when you focus on something somehow you can really lose the track wow. and that's what happened so I had my dad's phone with me because the freezing cold killed one phone. Mm-hmm. I had a backup phone with me with maps. And so I thought I'm well prepared. I lost my head torch uh, or I left it behind. So <laughs> oh, no. I was like, the moon was, so I had a clear sky after a little bit of snowing. I had a clear sky above me. It was seven o'clock and I should have gotten back the accommodation two hours earlier but i was still in the middle of these glaciers and uh, rocky bits trying to find my way and the map was messed up as well on the phone so anything that could uh, mean a hardship that happened but then i sat down for for one minute and tried to focus on the positive things and what can actually can help me to get bring myself back to mm-hmm. the place because I, I was pretty sure by then that they started seek, seeking for me my guide uh, must have been really worried very sick uh, so I was basically starting to climb on these very unstable rocks and stones trying to find uh, to get uh, on top of a a mountain to see if I can see any lights from a, from a village, yeah. but it took me at least an hour by the time I actually, because I, I climbed up a peak and it was just fog around mm-hmm. me. But at the end, I spotted uh, some lights from a certain destiny and, and it turned out that I went way, way uh, ahead. I took you took a wrong turn maybe, maybe a kilometer longer than I should have so I should have turned oh man before I did so that was crazy and that those moments I think what I learned is don't mess with nature you'd <laughs> you'd rather it's stronger than you and you should learn to contribute with it instead of fighting it and that's what I promised to myself because before the before this trip that respects the mountains because you don't know mm. what difficulties you can get during your trip. Yeah. What did your guide say to you when you returned? <laughs> he was he was very angry. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Was he was he thinking you were a bit too cocky and he said, You see what happens when you don't respect the mountain? <laughs> Yes, uh, he was very happy that I returned safe and sound and nothing happened to me because it could have ended uh, with a tragedy. But, but he, he was happy. But the next day, we were just walking next to each other 
in a silent mode. Everyone was shocked, or I was still shocked. Mm. Um, it took me time to digest all this because now when I talk about it, it doesn't seem that extreme, but it was, I mean, I could have gotten frozen there uh, uh, if I if I stopped moving I had I had to physically keep uh, myself moving to stay alive <laughs> that's crazy I mean that that sort of is like what you get in the movies that kind of stuff getting lost on a mountainside in the Himalaya did you have any kind of emotional or spiritual breakthrough from that experience <sighs> well this was really emotional. I mean, <laughs> I'm very grateful to myself that I survived. At first, I, I felt like I'm a failure. But then mm. after chatting to some people who had some similar experiences and stories, okay, maybe I'm a hero. So I changed the perspective. <laughs> and I, Yeah, even today, I think about it like, uh, not just not just an average travel, but something that I think that day I became very wise in in a short mm. period of time. I, I felt like I got older as well, maybe 20 years older <laughs> due, due to that stress. <laughs> I suppose it's a good advertisement for the guides too, because the guide lets you go by yourself for one day and you get lost. <laughs> so it's like, make sure you have a guide because otherwise this bad thing might happen to you. <laughs> exactly. And, and I asked him, have, uh, has anything similar happened in your 20-year-long experience as a travel guide? Mm. And he says, no, you're the first. <laughs> you're the first one and I really hope that you're the last one. <laughs> he doesn't need to have another heart attack. <laughs> exactly. Jofia, would you recommend this kind of adventure and why? Definitely. I believe traveling and this kind of tra adventure mm. traveling is not for everyone. For a long time, I thought about myself as someone who just likes staying in the same comfort home environment. But until I I stepped out of this comfort zone. I realized how much more I am capable of. So it's a great therapy, could be a great therapy. For me, at least, mm -hmm. uh, traveling is something that uh, shows you not only so different perspectives of life uh, about yourself. You can learn a lot about yourself when you end up in these new situations, new environments, you, you uh, get in contact with strangers, uh, you share stories, ideas, and views about life. I think, I think the answer to that good old question, what actually makes us happy or how we could or should live our lives, it, the answer lies within different cultures. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you are exposed to live in these different words, then you become more open-minded, more 
flexible, resilient, patient uh, towards yourself, towards others, no more prejudices. That, that's what I don't like in today's world, mm -hmm. hatred towards each other. We don't even want to listen to others. We have our opinion, strong, harsh opinions, and that's it. So it opens a lot, mm. opens up a whole new world. I recommend it basically to everyone who is uh, at least a little bit uh, an adventurous soul. Mm, and I can't wait to carry on, <laughs> go get back on the traveling track. My favorite four. What is your favorite souvenir? Mm. <laughs> Something uh, that's either a crafted it can be food or handmade something from... I suppose for somebody who's a minimalist, collecting souvenirs yeah. is not really something that you do. No. You're the same as me. No, I. that's why I'm struggling now because the other day I told my partner of, don't buy me anything. Uh, <laughs> instead, just cook a nice meal or, you know, experiences. I don't need things, material Yeah, you're the same stuff. as me. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, that's why it's a hard that's question. That's a hard question. Uh, experiences. Yeah. What is your favorite language? Mm, I love the sound of Spanish, how melodic it is. And uh, traveling in South America, I, I decided I would learn this language properly. It didn't, it hasn't happened yet, but I would love to one day speak Spanish. Beautiful. Conveniently, what is your favorite walk or hike? That <laughs> <laughs> so far, the Himalaya trip. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite film? Favorite film? I, I don't have one favorite, but I loved Catch Me If You Can with DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Great move, but seven years in Tibet, for example, is another great <laughs> one. <laughs> my favorite four. My final question before I let you ask me a couple of questions, considering you're a journalist okay. and this is what you do. Obviously, at the moment, traveling is basically impossible. All the borders are closed, flights are rare. Do you have any plans for your next trip at the moment? No plans because I'm still in a, not insecurity, but we'll see what happens at the moment. I'm not planning anything yet. I know once I can start traveling again, it will be Europe. I want to explore more because I, I live in a small country. I don't even know my own country. And there are many great places I would love to visit. So uh, I would love to travel around Europe by train. Well, we'll see what happens in the next couple of months. Will any of these destinations involve hiking? Not necessarily. If, uh, if I go for another hiking trip, that would be Kilimanjaro, so that I can ah. start covering all the continents. But it's, it's <laughs> yet it's just a dream, but who knows? It might turn to reality as sudden as the Himalaya trip was. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, if you want to ask me a couple of questions, I suppose now is as good a time as ever. Okay. So 
you started traveling in your uh, 20s and uh, have been to many places. So I guess you are a well experienced adventurer, not like me. <laughs> How much do you think traveling can be a life changing or at least a personality shaping experience? Or we might as well say an intense therapy. I think you already touched on this idea about travel being, like you said, a, a therapy. But what you said about going to different places and seeing different things and experiencing different cultures, at, at the same time, travel will educate you about other people and also yourself. So I think you already sort of answered your own question in that way, because I agree with everything you said. Mm -hmm. For me, my travels have definitely changed me and helped me to grow into a better version of myself mm -hmm. and that's been from placing myself in new situations in foreign situations where at times I felt uncomfortable but the same situation today as compared to when I first started traveling I, I'm not uncomfortable anymore because my comfort zone has expanded mm -hmm. and at this time in my life I'm thinking I need to expand it even further. So my thinking now is where do I have to go to challenge myself again? Like I was challenged 10 years ago, 11 years ago in my very early traveler days. Yeah, you're right. Travel is something that I think everyone should try and see if they can discover a better version of themselves and at the same time drop down their barriers that have been put up by their own cultures about how other people maybe are and see for themselves if that's true or not. Could you name three life lessons that your first uh, big trip uh, taught to you? What are your most important conclusions and wisdoms you gained as a globetrotter? Or... Mm. Yeah, I think be more outgoing mm -hmm. is a lesson I learned very quickly because I travel... I nearly always travel solo and I'm quite happy to be on my own, but I don't particularly like being lonely. Mm -hmm. If you want to meet people, especially when you don't know anyone, you have to be outgoing. You have to introduce yourself. You have to smile. You have to be friendly. You have to make connections with people. I have definitely improved in the way I do that because of traveling, because I forced myself and I pushed myself beyond my comfort zone to be more outgoing. Uh, so that's definitely one thing. Uh, another thing is uh, I've learned to be more patient mm -hmm. because when you're traveling, you're obviously reliant on other things a lot. You have to wait for the bus. You have mm -hmm. to wait for the train. You have to wait for somebody at the bank to change your money. You know, you have to be patient and polite. And that's something that I think we all can improve on, I suppose. But there are times when I was younger where I didn't have that much patience mm -hmm. and that was a quality I didn't like about myself. And so, and I still think I could be more patient. Uh, I think everybody can always improve. And another thing would be, I mean, and this is something I've always known because it's, it's in scriptures and it says, you, if you don't ask, you won't get anything. Traditionally, I'm a very shy person. People don't believe me when I say that, but it's true. And The way I am now is because I've been trying to become a better version of myself with time. But one lesson I learned in 
California when I was on one of my first big trips traveling solo. Uh, I just heard these two guys talking about the idea of planning a road trip uh, across California. And I just was thinking, I really want to do that. So I just said to them, hey, guys, can I join in on your road trip, please? <laughs> and they were said, yeah, sure. Come in and, and help us plan it. And so I ended up kind of jumping in on these two guys who are planning a road trip and and it became our road trip instead of their road trip that I was joining in. We all just owned it together. And I ended up doing a lot of the driving, which was really empowering, Mm. especially because I'd never driven on the other side of the road before in a different country, in a a car, a big car that I'd never driven before, a big Jeep. So yeah, I just learned that don't be shy, be outgoing and ask, because if you don't ask, nothing's ever going to happen. So yeah, there's three things. Fantastic. And what about time traveling right now in this current situation? If Would you time travel? If so, in what age would you travel to? How long would you stay there and why? <laughs> yeah, I've actually talked about this before back in Australia. This question is kind of not strictly time traveling. It's I would like to go back to, you know, maybe Georgian days. So sort of 200 years ago but when I say that I'd like to be fairly rich (laughs) because those days would have been so bad for poor people Mm -hmm. because poverty was was a problem Mm -hmm. and so all the all the cool things you see on British TV from these period dramas and and the, the the really immaculate and eccentric clothes that they wear and and the tea parties they have and the nice huge houses they live in, these are all very, very rich people. And so if I went back to that time, I would like to have money. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That were my three questions. So I guess the last thing to do is to say thank you very much. I thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. And hope to see you face to face soon again. Because <laughs> I owe you a, a cup of tea. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Nostalgic Vagabond. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. And if you would like to listen to other interesting talks on travel, there are more podcasts available. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts. And for updates, just follow me at The Nostalgic V. Don't forget, your journey is special. Own it. I've been Alan Hill. Until next time. Hey guys, if you enjoy listening to The Nostalgic Vagabond, why not support the podcast? If you haven't already, subscribe and you'll be notified when new apps drop. You can also support the podcast by leaving a rating or a review on your podcast app. Why not share this episode? Tell your friends about it if something resonated with you. Word of mouth is great promotion. If you're into social media, maybe post a screenshot of the episode or upload the link on your profile so your mates can see what interesting content you've been into lately.
or your support comes straight back and helps to keep the travel content and nostalgia of this podcast going. Cheers. So don't forget to subscribe.